everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Hunt to Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by eFish and Forage Market and Filson. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. Today, we're going to talk about an unusual topic that has been in the news quite a bit lately, and that is freeze-drying. So freeze-drying, we all know from freeze-dried ice cream when we were little kids, that is an astronaut food. It's stuff that was created for the space program back in the 1960s. But after decades and decades, freeze-drying has finally been a process that is just starting to be doable in the home. My guest today is Shannon Waters of Gastronome Meals, and Shannon has created what I think is the greatest line of freeze-dried meals that you can buy on the market, and they are all made from a chef's perspective because Shannon, she may or may not tell you in the ensuing hour, was a a chef at Michelin-starred restaurants, and she really, really knows her stuff, so... Her meals are reflective of that, and she has become an expert at freeze-drying in a commercial sense, but she also started with the home variety of freeze-dryers that we're going to get into extensively, and why you should and why you shouldn't use a freeze-dryer, where it's good, where it's not so good, and where they still have quite a bit of room to grow in terms of a preservation process. So without further ado, I will introduce us all to Shannon Waters of Gastronome Meals. Welcome to the Hunt Other Talk podcast, Shannon Waters from Gastronome Meals. You and I know each other already, and this is a great opportunity to get you on the show because your entire business is preservation, and it's preservation in a way that is a little bit off the beaten path for most of us. However, we probably all know about freeze drying, and Gastronome Meals is, uh, well, you tell me. You tell me what Gastronome Meals does. Well, hi. Super happy to be here. Uh, Gastronome is a freeze-dried food company. We primarily make packable meals meant for the outdoors. So the, so the idea of freeze drying is it's pretty old as far as I know. I mean, it's, I'm aware of it all the way back to the 1960s and it might be, it might predate even that. Yeah. Yes. It does predate that only in the way that, um, people first discovered the process, but as far as like modern use of it. Yeah. Well, how did people first discover the process? Cause I got to admit, I'm not, I don't know a ton about free drive. Well, like some rudimentary forms of it were basically at very high altitudes food would freeze and then warm up the next day. So basically like under low pressure at high altitudes, it would go from a frozen to um, a not frozen state and the ice would evaporate kind of not exactly the same way that it does now under more controlled environments. But that was the first instances where people were seeing it as a preservation method. I'm immediately thinking of what the uh, uh, Peruvians did with potatoes at really high altitudes. And I mean, that's the, that's the instance that, I, that springs to mind because they do that. They, they'll take all their various potatoes and they'll smash them up a bit and they'll leave them outside at like 11, 12, 13,000 feet. And then that happens to them and they, that's how they preserve them. I'm, are you thinking of a different example or? No, that's exactly it. Um, and so again, like under super less controlled in environments, that is the same concept. Got it. Got it. It would be interesting to know if, if people in, say, the Alps or the, or the Himalayas or, or some other really high alpine places did something similar. Um, I'd have to look back at 
some of our previous research on it, but I think, yeah, there's a lot of documentation of people in mountainous regions doing that, where they're at higher altitudes, things freeze naturally and then heat up in the day. So why does it need the high altitude? Is it pressure part of the part of this process? Yeah, pressure is a big part of the process. Oh, okay. So how so? Well, I guess we're just diving into this, huh? Yeah. So depending on there's different phases that the food will go through um, or whatever your freeze drying will go through, but it goes through different stages of being under vacuum pressure um, and different stages of heat that it will go through under various pressures or um, like different stages of vacuum. And depending on the heat and the pressure at that time, it's what allows the food to evaporate or sorry, not the food, the ice to move into a vapor instead of instead of melting into water so you're trying to get uh water ice to sublimate exactly interesting yes. interesting so that's a, a that's basically a kind of a controlled version of you know i'm sure you, you live in montana so i mean you you know i used to live in minnesota where you can play the trick in the middle of the winter where you take a pot of boiling water and throw it into the air and it disappears immediately <laughs> yes <laughs> yes that's basically, yeah, again, a very fun rudimentary version. Interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So you and I share a common background to some extent. We both worked in professional kitchens and, and you were a considerably better chef uh, than I was. Oh my gosh. Don't say that. <laughs> it's, it's true. I never worked in places with Michelin stars. Okay. Well, you have, that's the only, that's the only factor playing here. You're a wonderful chef. Well, I appreciate it, but you worked the grind and and so how long do how long were you working in professional kitchens i haven't calculated this in a while i got out of college when i was uh 20 or 21 and went straight into kitchens i didn't work outside of college except in kitchens um and then i st- i guess i still work in kitchens um it's just a different <laughs> version of so uh, you're originally from the greater Chicago land area, are you not? Did you have to say Chicago like a Chicagoan? Sh- Chicago, the greater Chicago <laughs> land area. <laughs> I am from the Chicago land area. I'm from a northwest suburb. Oh, uh, like uh, like the Naperville area. Hey, Barrington, close by. Ah, there you go. I'm I'm familiar yeah. with it. Why are you familiar with it? Well, as it happens, my ex-wife was uh, went to high school in Naperville. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah it's a it's great little neck of the woods to be from i would say yep as is as is westfield new jersey which is where i'm mm, yeah <laughs> great to be from uh so you didn't go to college for uh, to culinary school did you want to, to to get a regular de- degree um i did actually eventually go to culinary school i first went okay. to yeah i got my bachelor's in economics took some time to work in kitchens before deciding whether or not i wanted to invest in an education that which i ultimately did and i went to the French Culinary Institute in New York. So I did eventually get there. Did you find it useful? Um, I think that I learned some incredibly important fundamentals during that time that I wouldn't have learned in professional kitchens otherwise. Although I, at the time I was working um, somewhere, somewhere between one and two jobs um, at any given moment. And those jobs meant so much to me because I was learning so much in those kitchens and pushing my knowledge like an incredible amount on a minute to minute basis. 
that school just wasn't providing me. And so I was really focused during the time that I was in school on my actual career and the restaurants that I was working in. So I, um, I think I paid a lot less attention during school hours than I did at restaurant hours. So yes, it was useful in the way that I got a lot of fundamental basics down, but, um, I didn't do a great job at school. Mm. I've been both a journalist and a, and a professional cook and, and you can get degrees in both. And it's, it's been always been my contention that a journalism degree and a culinary degree are of marginal utility because those are both professions where you really, really, really learn when you're on the job. Yeah. And I would say, I'm sure there's like the basics and like the, the solid foundation that you need, but also there's, there's nothing that's going to teach you like working on the job for those. Yeah. 37 mains all day. Yeah. Yeah. Getting screamed at aggressively helps uh, drive in some of the knowledge points. For sure. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Did you, did you have a uh, angry Frenchies? Um, no, actually all of my culinary teachers were wonderful and really kind and no, I mean really in the patient. job. Uh, they were not French. Oh. Um, none of the people, that I worked for, geez, I don't want to say that nobody I worked for was French. No one that was mean to me was ah, out, was French. You got lucky. You got lucky. Yeah. I mean, because I was just, you know, cooking with a friend of mine. His name is Josh Valentine. And, and uh, he he's from Oklahoma, but he worked through all the different stages, like much like you did. And, and he has endless stories of Frenchmen, you know, putting like heating a, a, a saute pan up to like, practically red hot levels and then just putting it back in the rack and then mm. and then it'd be like someone would burn them and then the chef would be like you got to treat everything like it's hot <laughs> huh. okay point taken <laughs> yeah i think they're uh, and i'm pretty positive when i say that a lot of the old ways of behavior behavior in the kitchen are kind of phasing themselves out for better or worse. There's just a lot of teaching that probably went about the wrong way. Um, yeah, not I a agree. lot of that is accepted anymore. I agree. I mean, you know, I had, I didn't know that your boss couldn't put a cigarette out in your forearm when you, when you did something <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were some acceptable things that, I mean, not even that long ago, were happening that now would be like absolutely insane. I bring this up because neither of us work in kitchens anymore. <laughs> Yay. Except Yay. I mean a commercial production well, yeah, kitchen yeah. where I'm the chef. Yeah. So you know you're you were a sous chef at some pretty high flying restaurants if I'm right, right? Yeah. I worked at some really wonderful places. I was really fortunate to work my way up to those positions with those places. So at some point you're like, hmm I may not want to do this forever. What was, what was kind of getting at you? In my mind, the entire time that I was working at all of those places, I would enter the door as a stage. And my only thought was to work as hard as I possibly could to outwork any other human being in that place until I could get to the next position up and then be trusted with more information and more skill sets. And that was eventually sort of the downfall because that hunger didn't allow me to like sleep, eat properly, exercise, um, have normal functioning relationships, not only in my personal life, but with my family or my friends. Um, and I was basically like slowly dying. Um, I 
took my job so seriously and the tasks that I had at hand so seriously that my mental and physical health was degrading to a point that I recognized I couldn't function at, um, or I could, it just wouldn't be a very long life. And, Mm. um, the, the quantity of alcohol, drugs, work, um, lack of sleep just were really probably not great for the long run. And I knew that I had to stop. So given the skill set that I had, which was how to run a restaurant and the background knowledge that I have with my economics degree. And I also, there was a period in time where I broke my leg in this, in this zone. And I used it to get a online master's certificate at Cornell, their restaurant hospitality program, Mm. and really got an incredible education, um, before online learning was really a thing. Yeah. You're such a slacker. Jesus. I am a slacker. I know. (laughs) But but I took all that knowledge and asked myself, like, what am I capable of doing with the same skill set? Do I have to be standing at this expo window, passing food along and like butchering animals in the morning and working service all day? Is this the only thing I'm capable of? And when I wrote down on a piece of paper, like all the things that I know how to do, I was like, wow, I'm really good at opening restaurants or at least running them. Um, and I can get them off the ground and get them functional. I could do something with that. And I was a part of a women's forum in San Francisco that I helped start. And there's a wonderful woman who was my mentor and very business savvy, very intelligent, very well connected. And I said, Hey, look, I've got all these things. This is what I think I'm good at do you think there's a business here? Like, is that a, do you think that's a good concept to help people open restaurants? She goes, why don't you put that into, you know, like a more solid business concept um, and pass it to me as a business plan. And I said, okay, great. And I did that and I worked on it and I sent it to her and she said, let's, let's meet for coffee. And we had coffee and she goes, I just want to tell you that you're hired. And I was like, I'm have a job. I'm gainfully employed. And she goes, yeah, but I'm hiring you to open my restaurant and, um, I'll be your guinea pig for this. Let's do it. And it took a little while to step away from the restaurant group that I was working for. I I was going to say, did you do the whole, like, I'm just not going to show up to work tonight. Oh God, no, (laughs) I I can't remember now if I gave a three month or a six month exit, but it was a long time. I'm just breaking your shoes because you're exactly not the person who's going to be like every freaking sous chef I've ever had in my life. I guess Carlos isn't going to show today. No, and it's at like this, nine o'clock at night. No, at this point, I was the chef de cuisine of a restaurant. I was no uh, longer yeah. a sous chef. So gotcha. I, I had a lot of responsibility and not just responsibility. Like I love this restaurant group. I still love this restaurant group. And um, I, I owe a lot of what I know to them. So no, I gave them ample time, trained everybody that needed to be trained um, and worked very quietly on this business plan. So yeah, eventually I opened this restaurant for the gal who was my mentor and it was a smashing success and to her credit, a lot of press because she was in restaurant PR. And so within the first two months of having my own consulting business, I was in Bon Appetit and San Francisco magazine. And I, I honestly had no idea that this would even work, let alone get business. Like I didn't even have a strategy for how to get the next client. Um, but because of that, I had, um, a couple clients lined up right away. Ultimately one of them was here in Bozeman, which brought me to Bozeman. Ah, because I was wondering, because it's, it sounds like you've had 
three careers now, like the second career of the of, of restaurant consultant. So you, so someone flew you out to open up a restaurant in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yep, a brewery and a restaurant. We opened Mountains Walking Brewery. Um, man, maybe four years ago. I, okay, could be three. I'm not sure anymore. Interesting. I didn't realize that Gastronome was that young. Yeah, Gastronome is a little babe. Interesting. So, okay. So take me from being a restaurant consultant, no doubt wearing fancy clothing, um, <laughs> to, uh, to your current incarnation where you do not wear fancy clothing and you, uh, freeze dry things. Right. Yes. I wear like mostly yoga clothes and sweaters. <laughs> so when I got to Montana to work on mountains walking, I generally was staying I don't know, three to four weeks at a time at a place. And then I'd go back to San Francisco where I lived and kind of do a reverse commute to whoever I was working for at the time. But I rented a place in Bozeman, um, which allowed me a bit more free time as far as like weekends go, something that I hadn't been accustomed to working in the actual like kitchen as a chef. Like I never had a weekend. I don't, I don't recall a time having multiple days off in a row. So this allowed me the opportunity to like go on hikes, which seemed so foreign to take all this time away from work and experience some of the outdoors. But I was doing this, you know, while working in the consulting world and I had clients on the East coast and I would be flying to the East coast and then come back to Montana for this opening and found myself desiring the outdoors quite often. I would land and be like, I need to get to the mountains immediately, or I need to get to the river immediately. And I had a really good friend who helped me sort of get acquainted in the town. And he said, Hey, let's go on this pack rafting trip. At, at this point, I'd bought a pack raft and um, would go on like little day trips or one overnight. And he proposed a two night thing where we'd have multiple days away from refrigeration and multiple days in bear country where you had to be really careful with the food that you packed and how you stored it and not having very scented ingredients. And my MO was typically like, how do I make this backcountry adventure fine dining? How do I turn this into like a very obnoxious situation where I can serve you like a three course meal in the middle of nowhere? Um, and this was the first time where someone was like, you cannot do that. You have to pack what you want to eat into the tubes of this boat and you're going to be gone for two days and you really do not want to pack anything that smells good because bears will also like it. Side note, I so, wonder if like you had like a big old thing of curry, would that attract bears or, or would make them run away? That's a fair, <laughs> I think like, it, it, it depends on the bear's palate, I would say. How I suppose uh, you're right. But like, like I'm trying to think of something that is super unbelievably aromatic. I'm like, yeah, yeah big, just a giant bowl of curry. I would say that most food scents will probably attract a bear, any food scent. I am a super not a fan of grizzly bears. I grew yeah. up with sharks being an ocean person. And so I'm much more aware of and used to sharks. And I know who they are. And I know when to be afraid and when not to be afraid. And people who grow up in grizzly country are like that. But I have a, probably a more than healthy fear of brown bears. Uh, I'm going to go in that boat with you and say that my fear is like extreme to very extreme. Yeah. yeah. Have you, yeah. Have you ever had any close encounters? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you go out hunting in, um, grizzly country enough and you come around some places that they also hunt. It's all right. So you're camping and you're like, huh, no, no <laughs> aromatics. huh? Right. So 
essentially he says you have to have dehydrated or freeze dried food. And I said, no, that's not an option for me. I don't eat that. And he said, okay, well, you then stamp you your can't. feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he, if he told that story, he would be like, yeah, you were throwing a little fit, but yeah, I said no. And he said, okay, then you can't go. And I said, okay, well, can you just help me? And he said, yeah, I'll pick you the best one. It'll be amazing. Don't worry about it. And the first night we sit down, he pours water over said meal that I will not cite. And I'm reading the packaging and I cannot identify a food source on the ingredients. And I'm like kind of pouring over this, like looking at him. I'm like, so, so people eat this like normally, this is something that people do um, in the woods. And he's like, yeah, this is, you know, this is what I typically eat. This is my favorite one. Um, and I know it's like not up to your standards, but this is kind of what we got. I'm still reading the ingredients because the list is, um, like a mile long of the ingredients that are in this and still none have come across to me as a ingredient that comes from a food source. And I'm like, uh, okay. All right. I'll try a bite. And I took a bite and I was like, absolutely not this doesn't go into my body. I do not consume this. This is not a part of my understanding of the food world and I will not eat this. I'm not going to eat anymore. Have you ever and, seen the the second, have you ever seen the matrix? Uh, yeah, yeah. So like when they're out of the matrix and they have to eat that white clop, <laughs> that's what I have in yeah. my head right now. It's like, does it got a body good? And then even, <laughs> even, even Neo is like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Basically I was Neo and I was like, I'm not eating this. Um, and that was sort of a dividing line between me and the food. And I chose to no longer eat on that trip because I wouldn't, I just wouldn't call this food. This was not something that I could ingest. And one, I couldn't identify it as food. I, later I read into the ingredients and like, okay, I understand the concept of this, but it's not still not what I call food. But the flavor and the texture and like the visuals of it, I just couldn't understand it. And I looked at him and I was like, so this is really it. This is the best that you got. This is my friend who spends more time in the woods than anyone I know. And I said, this is what you're eating. You choose this. He said, yeah. And I go, oh man, I think I have to change this. And that's where it started. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors. And that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a, a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all wool body, has classic snap flap pockets, and a full width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. 
They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at Filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. The very next day I got off the river, I bought every single kind of freeze-dried, dehydrated, everything meal, hoping, just praying that one of these would be edible and I would be totally out of the game. And I'd be like, great, someone's doing it. I don't have to deal with this. This is not, not my pony, but I ate all of them. I tried every single thing I could find. I was sending them from Europe to my house just to make sure that like overseas people weren't doing it. And I couldn't find one that was good enough. So wait, hold on a second. So you're a restaurant consultant. That's your job. And you're like, I, I, I want to go hiking for more than one day. And I can't bring dry, dehydrated things because that's my answer always is just bring dried shit. And, and so you're like on this crazy quest to get like every single dehydrated, freeze-dried thing you can. Like, are you already starting to think that you want to start a company at this point? Um, I mean, in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, if no one is doing this, I have to do this. Like I owe it to the people who go outside to give them real food. But I honestly believed that somebody was already doing it better than I could. I so believe you, you, that- you were trying to find the, the, the best one so that you could be more happy in your own adventures. Yes, for sure. And prove myself that I didn't have to do this. Like the thought that came across my mind seemed insane. Like you have to start a freeze-dried food company. I don't know anything about that. I really hope that's not true. So let me find the thing that is the answer to this. And I can put this idea to rest and I can go back to my normal life. I did not find the answer that put that to rest. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> I did not. Um, and so, so, so I, it's like burning in your head at this point, right? Because you still got oh, your day yeah. job. I'm at my day job. I'm now also teaching at Montana State University. I am teaching in the hospitality program at this point and the Gallatin College at the Culinary School. I'm I'm doing everything that my normal life has to offer. Um, but in the background, there is this thing happening with dehydrated and freeze-dried food. And so I thought to myself, when I got to the end of that rope where there's nothing else left to try, I've eaten every single one that there is to eat and I cannot agree with it. Then I go, okay, how much is a, how much is a dehydrator on Amazon? Great. It's 80 bucks. I'm going to buy a dehydrator. I'm just going to see if I can uh, make a meal that is edible for myself. And the worst thing that comes out of it is that I find out that I'm actually good at this because then that's the turning point where I would have to say like, oh no, like you were meant to do this. And I did that and I dehydrated what one of the meals that is now on our menu. It's the Thai green curry and I dehydrated it. I pulled it out. I packed it into my pack for a little overnight pack rafting trip by myself just to get myself in the right environment, make sure that I was testing it in all the right ways. And I opened it up for dinner, had it on one of my favorite pieces of earth um, here in Montana And I took one bite and the exact opposite thing happened that happened on that first bite of a dehydrated meal, probably a year prior. It was amazing. And I was like, ah, why, why did you have to be good at this? Like, why couldn't you just fundamentally not understand this concept 
and not be able to do this. Your life is going to be so annoying hereafter. You were doing fine. And now you know that you have to fix this. Um, so let me and, stop you for a second. You said dehydrated. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So because that's that's my modus operandi. If I've got to go somewhere and I don't have access to normal things, I bring dried things like carne seca and dried mushrooms and and maybe even a bullion cube and and I all things that can that weigh like a couple ounces that I could fit in a backpack and I make it meal beans, you know, and I'll make a meal from that. But that's not freeze dried. Correct. Um, this was dehydrated because I, one, the dehydrated concept made sense to me. It was something that I'd done before. Like I've made jerky. I've done tons of garnishes that are, that are dehydrated. Like I definitely know how to dehydrate things. So that seemed like a really approachable step into what I was trying to do. And I understood that it would also preserve the food in the same way that some of these meals were. So it, it was an entryway in. Gotcha. Um, unfortunately, dehydrating does not provide the type of texture that I was ultimately looking for that would set our meals apart. I wanted them to be just like home. I wanted them to be perfect and dehydrating wasn't going to do that. That was something that I learned later down the line. I mean, and most people listening to this know that if you rehydrate something, it tastes good, but it's like salt, salt cod is not cod. You know, mm -hmm. and you know, a rehydrated mushroom is has a different texture than a than a fresh one. Exactly, at least as far as dehydrating goes. I so as soon as I did that, I got off the river and started researching freeze drying and recognized that if I wanted to produce the type of product that really stood on its own as a really great product, I was going to have to freeze dry to obtain those textures um, and the biggest thing that I did not want to commit to was the, the financial leap from a dehydrator into even like a test version of a freeze dryer, like a home freeze dryer. And that, that freaked me out because it meant that I was starting to get some skin in the game. So I did avoid it for a while, but ultimately chose to invest a little bit in the future of this idea. So you got like a, like a harvest ride or something? Yeah, a little, a little guy. So most of the people listening to this right now are either have one or are interested in in something like that. Because correct me if I'm wrong, they're like the only game in town in terms of a home home one. Yeah, I would say there's there's other options, but none of them um, are any different than the models that you're going to find from them. Um, they are they are sort of the only game in town for home freeze drying, I would say. Gotcha. Just to be clear out there, you're talking two grand minimum. I don't think you can get in for two grand. I think it's, uh, I'm looking at one right now. That's 20. Are you? So yeah, oh, it's great. a small one, but yeah, I mean, but yeah, the big one is 33. So yeah, you're talking between two and four grand if you want one. Right. And that was just for an idea, you know, like, at that time, you know, I'm living on my own. I don't have a lot of financial security and to be throwing some money at an idea seemed stupid, especially when I had my own business that you already have to throw money at and on a teacher's salary. 
It's not. Yeah, I was gonna say you're not like rolling in dough. Like no, not exactly. Ah, I'll I won't I won't trade in my Maserati for a new Maserati this month. I'll just get the for a drive. Yeah, exactly. So it was a really big choice, um, but I thought it was worth it to know know the next step. And you probably could have sold it on eBay too if you, if you didn't like it. Yeah. We we do have a little guy that we use for testing. Mm. Hey, everybody. If you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is at huntgathercook.com. You will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop. You use the code HUNTGATHERTALK. That's HUNTGATHERTALK in all one word. And you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing on the HuntGatherCook.com shop. You will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code HUNTGATHERTALK and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. So, all right. So you're starting to do this mostly for you now, right? At this point, I have started uh, handing it out to friends who get into the woods a lot and trying to get some feedback on what they're experiencing with it. So I would say at this stage, I can picture myself doing this and I'm in my old office for my consulting business and I'm wandering around literally handing out Ziploc bags (laughs) of food. Out of the back of a truck. Yeah. I mean, like in my actual office, I'm like wandering around <laughs> and, and delivering Ziploc bags of food. So give me uh, a sense of, so it's my impression that one major advantage of freeze drying versus just dehydrated is not only texture, but if I make a, uh, a meal in the, in the backwoods with dehydrated stuff, well, yeah, it can take a while to cook beans. Whereas a freeze dried thing, correct me if I'm wrong, is much quicker. Uh, no, you're not wrong. That's accurate. When when you freeze dry, the rehydration times are going to be significantly shorter. You know, you fed me the, which, what did you, it was a Thai curry is what you fed me when I visited your shop? Yeah. Yeah. So that that was like you pour boiling water and you let it hang for like five minutes and then it's done. Yeah. A patient person can, can get it to 12, but I'm an impatient person and I go, in, <laughs> I I go anywhere between 30 <laughs> seconds and two minutes. That is the advantage. I think that's probably what what most people are into is that the, the, the resurrection process of a freeze-dried food is much faster. Resurrection. Nice. Um, yeah, I think people really do appreciate that because by the time you're opening up a meal of any kind, whether it's dehydrated or freeze-dried, you're probably pretty hungry. Yeah. Yeah, nobody wants to sit for an hour and cook beans. No. You do, but I don't. I do because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I, you know, side note, both of us, for, for you guys out there listening, both of us are hunters. And I don't, I don't take a shot after sundown, even though you're allowed to shoot 30 minutes after sundown, like sundown is a hard no, because I kind of want to get back and, and eat some food and drink a beer and, and, uh, and, or, you know, find my animal while they're still light. Um, but yeah, I can, ima- I, I, there are many stories and you probably have a couple of an animal shot in the late in the day that you were working to get, get out of the, off the mountain late at night and there's no time to cook. That is correct. 
Yeah. That, uh, that deer you shot this year, that was a morning shoot hunt though, right? That was, yeah. I shot him. It was just after first light. So the sun still hadn't come up. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I did the same in Oklahoma this year. Ah, I know. I'm actually, I have questions about your deer hunt, but <laughs> we can circle back. All right. So, so, okay. So, so rehydrate the resurrection process is quick with, with freeze dry. Right. So, but, but you're spending a lot of money. Anybody is spending a lot of money on, on this process. Why? So what, if I'm going to spend say $2,500 and I'm like, I want to freeze dry stuff. Who, who should be doing this? I mean, what's, what are the advantages of it for, you know, someone who lives at home and who's not creating, uh, you know, packable meals for, for uh, hunters and, and hikers? My honest opinion is that you shouldn't, that it's such an incredibly small output for such a huge input as far as financials and the actual food you put in there, you're going to, you're going to turn out a pretty small quantity of product for that. And like I said earlier, like you can just get a dehydrator on Amazon pretty cheap. And if you're not doing huge quantities where you need the texture to be perfect for a customer, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't mess around with it. But, but it's, it, it sounds like you're getting to the, if I'm hearing you correctly, that one thing that a freeze dryer can do that a dehydrator can't do is you can, you can freeze dry things that you can't successfully dehydrate. You can freeze dry things that you can't successfully dehydrate. Because um, there's a whole bunch of things that I would never dehydrate because they're just going to be terrible. But I see them showing up in freeze dried meals. I would say the coin can be flipped both ways. You okay. can successfully dehydrate things that don't make sense to freeze dry. And you can successfully freeze dry things that don't make sen sense to dehydrate. Um, like one example, mm -hmm. you cannot make jerky by freeze drying it. Um, so what happens? Have you tried it? First of all, you can't really do that because during a freeze drying process, the food, how do I explain this in a really easy way? When you're dehydrating something, you're starting with raw meat, right? And you're mm -hmm. getting it to a point where it's technically cooked. Um, in the freeze drying process, at least the way that I do it, I am not cooking the food in the process of freeze drying it. Um, so there would be no point at which the bacteria was killed to make jerky even safe. But the bigger point is that it would turn out like, <laughs> uh, like, like airy meat. It would be pretty nasty and it would be like mostly raw. Oh God. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure Grant Ackett's over at Alinea is, is freeze dried meat and made it into some amazing garnish. Oh, for sure. Like if you're, if you're in the world of fine dining where you're pushing the limits of what people are expecting with food and flavors and textures and where things belong and where your mind wants them to belong, uh, 100% get a freeze dryer. You will never stop having fun. Hmm. What are some of the fun things that you've put up, you've done that are like huh, super not practical, but really delicious? Um, well, this was really early on. I just wanted to know if you could make cookie dough with cookie dough. So basically I took cookies and I freeze dried them and then I made them into flour and made 
cookie dough with flour of cookie dough. Um, it's like a Mobius meta. loop. Yeah, <laughs> it was a meta cookie. Um, <laughs> and you know, it was, there's it was your funny. next, there's your next million dollars. Just make something called meta cookie. Meta, meta cookie. It's a cookie made out of cookie that was made out of cookie. Um, and then you'll, so, your spokesperson will have to be named cookie. Right. It's all cookie. Um, so I've done some like f- funny things where you just kind of are curious about what the outcome would be. Uh, butter, lots of, lots of things that I don't know. It's kind of like when we get around food, anyone that has a deep passion for food is just genuinely curious about what happens when you combine this with that. There was a lot of that in the beginning because, you know, I didn't really have any finances attached to it. It was just like a play toy. Now, no, like my production cycles are so tight that I can't even squeeze a breath in there to test that. So now there's a lot less play than there used to be when I was first discovering what freeze drying was doing. But uh, in the beginning, yeah, there was a ton of like, can you make a cookie out of a cookie? <laughs> so uh, you have a, a set menu and I'm, and all of everybody listening here can figure out that you're a very systematic person. I guarantee you that you have given an awful lot of thought into every single one of your menu items. And you're like, that will work. And then there'll be some other idea. Well, that will not work. And this would going through that will give someone who has a freeze dryer or who is interested in getting a freeze dryer, um, a better understanding of, well, how do you do this? Like what, what will work and what doesn't work and, and how, you know, textures and combinations of things. And, and so there has to be kind of a, a general template for what makes a decent freeze-dried thing and versus one that just is kind of a disaster? Yes and no. I would say that in the beginning, when I was first starting to deal with it, every single thing that I freeze-dried surprised me. Um, and right now we're in the middle of R&D for another round of new flavors. And even today I tried something, I was like, that is wild. I don't know why it did that. And I've never experienced that before. And I it did not come out anything like I imagined. So yes, now I have like a general rule of thumb that I go by like, okay, high fat content is going to make it turn out like this and high sugar content will turn out like this. Um, but when it comes down to it, the best way to find out what's going to work is to do it. That being said, like grains are really great, but there are like most of them you can already buy shelf stable. If you're willing to put some cooking effort into it, even like if you want to buy instant rice, you can definitely do that. So there's a lot of things that lend themselves well to that, like starchy things, fatty things just don't. Um, Mm. and there's so many different elements to our meals at this point that every one of them was tweaked once they came out of a freeze dryer and I got to see how they behaved in there, but it wasn't so systematic that I was like, celery will do this. Ah. Apples will do this. Um, it just doesn't work like that. So thinking back to the Thai curry, um, that necessarily has coconut milk in it, which is super mm-hmm. fatty. How did you get around that? You know, in looking at other people's meals, when I recognized that the fat content was going to be really high, I started researching what other meal companies were doing. And I looked at it and they were all doing tapioca maltodextrin to stabilize their coconut or they p- purchased um, coconut milk powder, which was stabilized with, um, tapioca maltodextrin or some other type of thing. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to do that, but then I looked at their content of coconut milk and generally speaking that like quantity was just 
out of control. And I was like, oh, okay, we're trying to meet like a really sweet palate here because that's our understanding of curry is that it's supposed to be this like ultra coconutty sweet thing. That's just not how I cook. And that's not what I understand a curry to be. So I looked back at my recipes and we're like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty in balance here. Um, I think it'll be perfectly fine. And I have come to understand that the quantity of fat that I have in it is perfectly fine. Hmm. I'm out in the back country. I, I pretty much want to eat like fat. Yeah. <laughs> kind of fat all the time. Like, you know, freeze-dried bacon would be good. Uh, yeah, I think probably that exists quite a bit. Um, I'm not sure what bacon bits are stabilized as, but I, I have to imagine there's either some dehydrating or freeze-drying going on. Gotta be. Run through your main, you don't have a huge menu, so you can probably list them all right now, right? Yeah, that's true. We have two breakfasts. Um, there's a bison chorizo hash and a butternut squash and maple oat bowl. Then we have five lunch and dinner options, a mushroom farfalle, Italian sausage rigatoni, Thai green curry, yogurt braised chicken, and a pozole, which you hate, and the, <laughs> <laughs> and the peach cobbler. Hate is such a strong word. I know, but I only use it when I mean it, and I know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the peach, peach cobbler. We also have freeze-dried ice cream sandwiches. So, Oh, well, of course, freeze-dried ice cream is kind of the 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 quintessential freeze-dried food because of the because I of agree NASA. it's what I grew up eating at the space museum like, right loved seeing those things and it's probably the only freeze-dried product that most Americans ever see or hear of isn't it or recognize as freeze-dried because there's plenty of things like there's so much that's freeze-dried in our world most of your pet food is freeze-dried huh. um, but we don't know that because we just don't recognize it as that but the ice cream sandwich, we all know that came from NASA and it's freeze-dried and that's what freeze-dried food is. And it's super fun. Is there any other freeze-dried thing that is in the American food system that like people are eating right now? Man, I'd have to think about that. I'm sure there's tons. I, like in prepared food? Oh, yeah. Like, like let's say, for example, like cereals. If there's most times, if there's fruit in it, that, that's all freeze-dried fruit. Ah. Let's talk about berries for a second, because berries and fruit are an absolute pain in the ass to dehydrate. Like if you want to dehydrate blueberries, it can take two days. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely freeze dry them. I've freeze dried blueberries. There, yeah. In fact, yeah, you're right, because there was freeze dried blueberries in some in some children's cereal that I yes. remember eating as a kid. For sure. Yeah. Can't, re can't exactly remember the, the brand because it's been, you know, 800 years. But yeah. Um, <laughs> Back when the world was black and white. Um, right. Pre-TV. Yeah. Maybe that is one of the advantages that people are using. Like, oh, I can freeze-dry fruits much faster and then they can rehydrate better than, than something that's been put in a you know regular dehydrator. I wouldn't say that a, the speed is much to do with it um, because freeze-drying doesn't, I would say, almost never is faster than dehydrating. Um, Interesting. Okay. And it's probably quite a bit more time consuming for most things, um, but it definitely rehydrates better. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It, you know, you don't get that leathery, like, I don't know. Have you ever seen fully dehydrated elderberries? Um, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're effectively birdshot. <laughs> yeah. That's, those aren't going to rehydrate. That's I mean, you work. could probably put them in a, in a shot shell and, and kill a grouse with it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. Hmm. So what's going on in the world? Because I mean, now that you're in it, this is, this is, you know, you have made the transition from chef to cuisine to restaurant consultant to, to producer of, of delicious freeze-dried foods. You're part of the industry now. So like, what's, what can people expect with, I mean, because clearly people are working on things to make the process better or to, or whatever, whatever. Um, I would imagine that some folks come out with a, a home freeze dryer that um, improves upon what Harvest Right is doing, just because like you mentioned, Harvest Right's kind of the only one in the game. And anyone that's listening, that's even, even worked with their machine a little bit, it breaks so often, like an incredible quantity of times, like the ratio of breaking time to functional time is pretty lopsided. And they're, hmm. um, they have, they have no way to actually come out and fix them. So you're left to your own devices and the customer service is pretty otherworldly. Um, and it's one way. And, <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's room for improvement for home freeze dryers. If there was something small that people could use kind of like a dehydrator size that people could play around with, or also just preserve their own food with at a reasonable cost point. I, I imagine we'll see something like that because the company's just not doing it right. So there's some space there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, I know of a lot of big projects going on, but they're all related to um, pet food and some building going on in, in the freeze-dried world as it relates to pet food. I think in general, the consumers at, in America, at least, are moving closer to understanding their food and asking for more transparency. That's been a shift for consumers as a whole to have more transparency, whether it's clothing or manufactured goods. Um, people just want to know where their stuff comes from and that sure. it's good and that it's valuable. So I think we're starting to see that in the freeze-dried food world where it's already happened in general food. Um, like just the average shopper went through, we went through that organic phase a while ago where that was the biggest movement. And then people were like, but where is it coming from? And how local is it? And how many ingredients are on this? That's starting to happen in the freeze-dried world, which is amazing because it's going to ask the bigger producers to use better ingredients and um, use quality ingredients that they can be more transparent about. So I think we'll start to see a shift there. And again, like the bar raising for the biggest companies means the bar is going to raise for the smallest companies too. So I think we'll see that. Yeah. Hunt Gather Talk is brought to you in part by eFish. eFish delivers fresh, in-season, wild, American-caught, dayboat seafood right to your doorstep. This means that in most cases, your order is still swimming when you place it. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. But most importantly, with eFish, you can always be sure that they put harvesters in our oceans first with every purchase. What does that mean? Small boat operators hook and line caught fin fish, and their products are never treated with chemicals. Truly handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives on your doorstep. And as a 1% for the planet company, they work to ensure that our oceans will continue to thrive for generations to come. I have received e-fish shipments myself, and I can tell you that they always arrive in top-notch condition, ice cold, even from all the way across the country. So if you want access to Harvester Direct in-season seafood that is always fresh and never frozen, check out efish.com. That is e-fish.com. 
HuntGatherTalk.com. You get $15 off your first order with my code HuntGatherTalk. That is HuntGatherTalk, all one word. Again, you'll find all of this at e-fish.com. I can't imagine too many scenarios where you would eat freeze-dried food unless you were in the backcountry or, you know, at sea or something. I mean, it's, am I, am I, I'm trying <laughs> because to. You, because you're extremely resourceful and the average person needs things to be easy and um, convenient. So where you might walk into the woods or um, uh, any scenario where there's something edible, I could walk into that same space and be like, I'm going to die out here. So you, you have an ability to source food in places that not everyone can. So I'm kind and, of a bad example is what you're saying. Yeah, you're you're not our consumer target consumer. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, you could yeah, you could eat your way out of like the Bermuda Triangle. So it's mm, not fishies. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. See, you already were like, what's what can you fish in the Bermuda Triangle? Yeah, I, I will tell you truly, when you said the Bermuda Triangle, I'm like, oh, the Sargasso Sea is right there, and there's shitloads of eels. Did they all go there? <laughs> exactly. Um, and the rest of us would be like. I'm going to die. And I think that this food just speaks to convenience altogether. Like I'm perfectly capable of getting out from a hunt and driving to the bar down the street. But do I want to go into a bar with a bunch of like cigarette smoked walls? And do I want to go have a burger, something that's pretty gross and going to be bad for me? Or can I just sit in my truck and eat this meal and pour water over it right now? Yes, I can do that. So I, there's certainly like an ease to it that I think people identify with because it's convenient and they can eat really anywhere. It's not just in the woods. Um, mm. So I, you're I seeing it. like, to give me an example of the kinds of people who are buying gastronome and other freeze-dried meals uh, who are not backcountry people or not like in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Well, we see it pretty much every day at our shop as different walks of life come in. And I always ask like, oh, what do you have planned? Or what are you up to with this? And you can't even guess the things that people say. I want them every time to be like, oh, I'm going on a hike and I'm backpacking in. That's almost never what comes out. It's it's like, oh, wow. Whoa. I didn't know that people did that. Um, oh, now you got to give me some examples. <laughs> I mean, some really average answers that the food wasn't built for. For example, like, oh, my family and I are going on our, our road trip to visit our grandparents and X, Y, and Z place. And we just don't want to stop for Subway along the way. So we're going to have these in, in the trailer so that we always have good food on hand. That seems like entirely reasonable to me um, so that they don't have to go back there and like cut up vegetables and cook on the little stovetop thing. They're just going to be like, kids, hold on. Dinner's ready. Just sit there for two seconds. I just make Um, empanadas. Yeah. Again, like you and the Bermuda Triangle, (laughs) (laughs) you'd be totally fine. Um, Actually, I I drove uh, 1,700 miles from from Northern California to Oklahoma and back and uh, I made these empanadas that were like with bread, bread outside. So not, not a pastry dough. And those suckers lasted for like five days. They were awesome. Where did you store them? Just in the car. What do you mean in the car? Like I said, do I stutter? It's in the car. Just on the passenger seat? Yeah. Out in the open? Well, I didn't, well, they were in a little Tupperware thing. I didn't want people to steal them. And how did you reheat them? I didn't. I just ate them cold. Ah. Come on, empanadas are great cold. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> if you make them right. 
<laughs> I must be making them wrong. Yeah, I mean, they're fantastic. And some of them are actually better cold. Huh. And, you know, it's it's quasi-winter, so it wasn't like it was 100 degrees out. That's true. Well, I like that you have empanadas riding shotgun, but I <laughs> I believe most people have no empanadas riding shotgun. <laughs> also fair. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, so road trip food, is that's a good idea. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's great for me to see that because I'm like, oh, you like our food enough to take it with you on a road trip. That's amazing. Like, this is convenience food for you. I mean, our, most of our people are probably hunting, I would say, mm. then there's a good chunk of folks that are backpacking or hiking, climbing, um, ice climbing, mountaineering of some kind. Lots of people are getting on rivers, even like we have guides that are fishing guides that take it with on river trips so that they don't have to stop and cook lunch and have a lunch on the boat that goes bad, or they need a cooler for like, they just have a hot lunch for their people right on the boat. Um, we really get, we get everything. You know, who'd really, who'd really appreciate it would, well, I don't know if appreciate it, but that would be good for them are truckers. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I have a great friend who comes through and stocks up for his truck um, for that exact reason. Yeah, because, you know, having spent an enormous amount of time on America's highways, you can find good food, but you got to look for it. Yeah. And it's not always going to be open, especially given the hours that people are driving those roads. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, just whenever it's convenient. A lot of, a lot of people are eating it in the office. Got to tell you. Really? Huh. Yep. I guess that makes sense. You know, especially in like, you know, if you're working for Twitter now, you get 12 minutes for lunch. So <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I heard they took away the five course meal. They did. They did. Now mm-hmm. it's, now it's a, it's a, it's your competitors freeze dried meals and you get eight minutes to go into eat. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. So, uh, what's next? What's your, do you, do you, do you do new products every year or is it just sort of when the, the muse strikes you? I think it's sort of finding its way to an answer there because we are so young. We're celebrating our second anniversary in December and I don't really have a method of madness just yet. Like I don't say, Oh, this year we're going to launch three new flavors. And last year we launched two new, like I don't really know but it is feeling like there's a natural rhythm that comes about when the busy season ends is basically when hunting season caps right around now, we have a a ton of free time to be able to be um, creative and experiment and answer some of the needs that we've been hearing about from our customer base. So it looks like every winter I'll have a bit of freedom to be able to work on fun ideas and then push them out either in the spring, summer, or next fall. So no exact craft at the moment for how many are coming out, but I would say for sure this spring, I know at least one new dinner option. It's possible another breakfast, less possible. Although if I get enough time, I'll be able to make it happen for a dessert. Gastronome was like a whelping infant when I first met you at, at Backcountry. <laughs> what a description. <laughs> were, we, were, were we doing that bad? Uh, you know, I mean, when, when we met at uh, Backcountry Hunters Rendezvous. Yes. Uh, super bootstrapped. This thing is as bootstrapped as it gets. And you can see it from the outside. And that's good by me. Yeah. So uh, one question I failed to ask you uh, earlier, and it's pretty relevant. And I think I know the answer, um, but you, you're getting, you know more than I do, is it's my impression that freeze-dried food lasts until the second coming, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, basically. I 
so the way that I talk to people about it, our meals are, they're shelf stable. They're not, nothing bad is going to happen to them as far as safety is concerned. For me, our shelf stability relies on flavor and the flavor starts to sort of dull and then kind of just like die out at a certain point, but will it ever become unsafe? No. So for freeze drying, yeah, it's really shelf stable. Yeah. Cause my, my impression about the real sort of the freeze drying world in the United States is it's largely like preppers, like Wait. homesteaders and preppers who want that store for either for, because they live in the middle of nowhere or because they're waiting for, you know, bad things to happen. <laughs> You're saying that that's the people who freeze dry or that's the yes. people who buy freeze dried? Uh, who, who, who buy the freeze dryers. Ah. like who's like who's the market like the the market is in from what i understand the market is primarily homesteaders and preppers uh for for a freeze dryer i think you're probably close to right i would say i'm sure there's like a one to five percent of those people are like chefs or people in the culinary world um if we're just talking about like a home freeze dryer yeah i i can't imagine why you would want that because they're large too it's like it's it's like having an old stereo system for sure yeah it's the size of like a washer or dryer yeah it's not like a like i have an an excalibur dryer uh which is just like a black box that sits on a on a thing it's (laughs) and i i swear by it by the way i like i'm not being paid by excalibur to say that but they are a sacramento company so (laughs) yay sacramento uh that's actually the dehydrator that i bought when i bought it on amazon it was like the the nine tray the nine tray yep yeah black box i have i have homemade chipotles drying in it as we speak oh lovely because i can't live without chipotles no one should have to no so how do you make your pozole actually? <laughs> oh, I knew it was coming. What do you want to know about the pozole? So, okay. So for you listening out there, this has been a running joke because um, <laughs> it, she brings out this red pozole thing uh, when I first meet yeah. her and like, oh yeah, you cook Mexican food. You should try this. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and it's, it's as a freeze dried meal, it is, it is perfectly fine but it is, ah! you know, it is not Pozzoli. <laughs> Pozzoli, which takes a day to make, you know, all day the pig's head is simmering and you shred the meat off the head and the hominy is perfect. And you're making it either, you know, white, red, or green. That dish, especially like if you had made like, I don't know, you know, some other Mexican soup, I think it has less cultural weight than Pozzoli. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, everybody knows what Pozzoli is. Right. You should totally do freeze-dried menudo. Nope. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I could handle the backlash just from you specifically. <laughs> so the, so how do I, how do I describe this? Basically when you're making a freeze dried meal, you have to have the like feeling in mind that you want to get when you're consuming it and the joy that it brings you and acknowledge that there's no possible way that you can smash into your little backpack this dried little component um, inside of a bag that you can pour water over and it's going to perfectly turn out like the thing that you get at this, like p- the place where you got pasole 10 years ago in Mexico. Like there's just no way, but is there a possibility that I can bring forward some flavors and some textures and the idea of the dish that would bring you the same like idea and joy 
that having that bowl, maybe in a better environment could bring you sitting on the side of a mountain somewhere, um, with like really great ingredients with really thought, thoughtful care that goes into cooking it. Yes, I can probably do that. Will it ever resemble the thing that I want it to? No. I think what's cool about freeze drying in general is that the reason why I, I'm having you on the show is not only because we're friends, but because you are doing, you are advancing freeze drying in that respect. And I get the, you know, I, I'm always having my back of my head that kind of like the Star Trek kind of boom. And there it is. There is the real bowl of pozole. And I, and I bet you, maybe not in my lifetime, but in maybe somebody who's born right now is lifetime that the technology will advance well, where it will get to closer to that. I think you're probably right. Like when I think about the speed that it takes to um, dehydrate something versus freeze dry something, there's more technology involved with the freeze drying process. And is it possible that there will be advances as it relates to those steps? Yes. Dehydrating, we all, again, can like grasp and understand. And it's kind of like a time and temperature thing that you can't really force through. But does that leave a lot of room for improvement in the freeze-dried world? For sure. And are people constantly trying to make whatever it is that they make freeze-dried better? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's actually kind of a cool way to end it. But before I, I let you go, how do people find you on the series of tubes we call the internet? Oh, um, me personally or gastronome? Uh, well, whichever. I'm not that interesting. Um, Gastronome is on Instagram, but no other social media. And it's just gastronome meals. Um, and then our website is gastronomemeals.com. You can find all the things that we freeze dry on there and much more. Note that you have to do gastronome meals because there's a nefarious organization that calls itself <laughs> a restaurant that is just gastronome, which we're, we're, when we get off this, this call, we're going to go down and burn it to the ground. Um, oh my so she, gosh, just no. so she can have her URL back. <laughs> no, I, I feel, I feel sad about that restaurant. I'm constantly either like hearing about it or sometimes people call us and want to be making a reservation at that place. So, um, well, it's in like Colorado, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's in California. Oh, it's in California. Yeah. No, I get the same thing because there's an Englishman who is essentially my doppelganger. I mean, we don't look alike, but we do the same things. And he started his website six months after mine, Hunter gatherer cook uh, <laughs> that's awesome so yeah it's just you know these things happen yeah these things happen so it is gastronome meals we have the meals yes shannon waters thank you so much for being on the, on the show i will catch you either at bha this coming year or in uh or somewhere in the backcountry chasing god's creatures right can't wait thanks for having me well, that's our show this week. Thank you for spending some part of your day with us. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by Filson and eFish. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we learned a little bit more about freeze drying, and I guess the short answer is it's still kind of on its way. It's not quite where dehydrating or curing or pickling or canning is yet, but we are getting there sooner than you think. As always, you can find me on Instagram. I am at HuntGatherCook. I also have my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and that can be found on huntgathercook.com. Until next time, be good, preserve something, have fun, and definitely get yourself outside. <laughs> <laughs>